Well, as you guys know, Friday, if you guys would turn with me to Mark chapter 16 is where we're going to be. We're going to do the first half of 16, and then next week we'll go ahead and finish up the second half of 16, which has been really cool. If you guys haven't been here over the last month or two, uh, our study through Mark has, uh, has fallen uh, right alongside with, uh, with, e- with, uh, with resurrection, with, uh, with the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So we have the preceding weeks, we have been going week after week after month after month, going through Mark, and, uh, and we come to this place here, chapter 16, um, of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, not by my plan or not by my might, um, but God has essentially put it that we would finish up or almost finish up uh, the gospel of Mark, uh, talking about the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. And, uh, and I think it's so cool. Last Tuesday, uh, we went through uh, numbers, and we talked about uh, the red heifer and the water of cleansing and our need of that and how Jesus is, has fulfilled all of that. And the Jews are still put their hope in that, but we know that he has cleansed us from all of our unrighteousness. And so that's where our hope and our faith and our trust is put. But it's important to note as we come into Mark chapter uh, 16, I told you guys last week, or on Friday actually, um, there in chapter 15, where it talks about the death of Jesus, verse 33, your bold print should say something like the death of Jesus. I told you guys to write uh, something besides that. What do you have there, Georgia? You have the Passover lamb. And we talked about on Friday that the death of Jesus, that it is not just Jesus going to the cross, not just God going to the cross, but this is, this is the fulfillment of something that God had, all, had instituted uh, 1,500 years earlier. And the reality of it is that when Jesus goes to the cross, he is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Now, you guys, just a quick history over that. You guys understand, you remember that when the, Egypt, when the, the Israelites were in bondage to Egypt, Egypt is a picture, a type of the world and the sin and the bondage that God led his people free. But you know, before he, before he set them free from there, do you remember that he brought the 10 plagues upon the Egyptians? Now, that, was that just because he was angry at the Egyptians? What's the reason that he brought the 10 plagues upon them? May know? He's, well, he's trying to teach them that he's God, and each one of those 10 plagues, directly he was attacking one of their false gods that they're putting their hope in. Each one of the 10 plagues behind it was represented one of their false gods, and God is trying to say, all of your gods are false. Pharaoh is not a god. I am the one true God, so worship and honor me. And do you remember Moses tells us that there was a, that there was a group of people that came out, uh, Egyptian people that came out with the Israelites because there are some Egyptian people that are like, man, our gods are bogus, and uh, the God of the Israelite, this Yahweh, this I am, that's where I want to be. So they actually parted company with, uh, with their country, with their God mindset and worship structure there, and they left with the Israelites to go out, uh, to go into the land, into the life that, that God had essentially promised. And then, so we have about 1,500 years later, you have you have Jesus there, and we talked about this on Friday night. We saw the video clip. It was the, by the way, what we saw on Friday was the actual, it was the actual footage of Jesus in the upper room. Uh, I don't know if, just kidding, just kidding. Not the actual footage, but the best that we can put together. And remember what Jesus did on that Passover meal. Three gospel writers tell us that it was the Passover meal, that last supper that he had with them. It was the last Passover that needed to be eaten. It's the last Passover in that sense that needed to be celebrated in that sense. And what Jesus does at the very last Passover is he replaces 
the lamb and the bread and the wine with who? With himself. And what he tells them is, as he's showing them is, I am the Passover. I am your Passover. Now, something interesting to note about the Passover, and this is all leading up to the resurrection. It's hard to get to the resurrection without first having to go through the crucifixion. And when we think about, when we think about Passover, remember this, in the Old Testament, well, let me say it this way. There's no difference between how people were saved in the Old Testament and how people were saved in the New Testament. There's no difference. People think, oh, well, maybe in the Old Testament you had all the law and this and that and the sacrificial system. That is true. But all of that that God gave them had a couple different uh, purposes. The first purpose was he was trying to show them that they needed to rely on something other than themselves for salvation. Another thing was that there would have to be something that would die in their place for there could be no remission of sins without what? The shedding of blood, without death. And so he was showing them all of that, that they would put their hope and their trust in God's plan. In the Old Testament, do you know how somebody was saved? One simple word. It's the same word of how we're saved today. Faith. That's what it was. It's how the Old Testament saved with the, the Old Testament saint was saved. Genesis chapter 15, Moses writes to us that Abraham, he believed, what's the word? Believed God and righteousness was credited to him. How was Abraham saved in the Old Testament? He was, he was, because he believed God. It was simply by faith. How are we saved today? Yeah, it's by faith. It is by grace you're saved through what? Yeah, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Otherwise, we would what? We would brag and boast about how great we are, what a good person we are, because we're so righteous, and we become self-righteous, we become pharisaical, and then we just end up going, uh, going to hell anyways. The only difference between the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints is this. There's a cross, right? Here's the Old Testament. This is the 4,000 years, give or take, that we say was established uh, from creation. 4,000 years of Old Testament, of, of, what we call, uh, of what we call people before the cross. And there are people who were saved during that time, right? Was it because of what they did? It was because of what? It was because their faith in God's word. And then you have the cross. And then you have about 2,000 years on the other side of the cross, The only difference, the only difference was that in the Old Testament times, or what we consider the Old Testament times, they were looking forward to how God would save them, and they had faith that God will save us. We today, on the other side of the cross, we look back and we say, God, what? Has saved us. In the Old Testament, they said, God will save us. In the New Testament, we say, God has saved us. So it's all, we're all looking, but isn't it interesting? From the beginning of time to the end of the time, people are looking towards what? Towards the cross. We're looking back at the cross today, and we're saying, wow, what an accomplished work. But guys, that's not where we stay, right? We've been given a new life. We've been given a new understanding. Paul would tell the Hebrew people, now we need to leave the elementary truths, and we need to move on to greater things. We need to start moving forward in our walk because Jesus says this, he has died to give us life and an abundant life. He didn't say, I died so that you go to heaven. Matter of fact, what Jesus would, what is, if, if Jesus were here sitting and speaking and teaching to us, I'm not even going to say that I would say what Jesus would say. Let me say, the concept is this, that what Jesus has died for us for is that we could have a relationship with his dad. 
That's, that is what the eternal God, he has died for that. The concept of heaven, boy, we have really just blown that thing out of proportion. Jesus has died that we would have, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. And everlasting life, it's not talking about a length of time. It's talking about who the everlasting life is. Who's the eternal life? Yeah, Jesus is. It comes from the Father, right? And so what Jesus is saying is, if you believe in me, you can have a relationship with the Father. And that's the avenue that he opens up. That's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. It's us trusting in the work that he has done by what? Faith entering into an eternal relationship with the Father. That's what this is all about. Well, that was the Passover. So here he is. He now, as John would say, John the Baptist would say, uh, when Jesus early on, right at the kind of the beginning, Jesus starts stepping out into the public scene and he says, behold the what? The Lamb of God. He's going to take away, this is going to be the one. This is the Lamb. So, so the concept, John the Baptist already kind of understood that Jesus was going to be, he was the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. And one more thing I want to talk about as, we're, uh, as I'm talking about Passover is simply this. In the Old Testament, what God did for the Israelites, were the Israelites perfect? Did they have sin? Okay, did they have sin, wickedness, and rebellion, especially towards God? Absolutely so. Do we? Yeah, we can have that too. It's called our flesh for the saint, right? It's the flesh. It, it rejects, it rebels against the things of God. In the Old Testament, when it talks about being passed over, God brought his judgment upon the Egyptians because they were just simply, they'd hardened their hearts and their rebellion against him. Now think about this. He brought a tiny little judgment upon them, didn't he? I mean, as far as the kind of judgment God could bring, I mean, he could have just wiped out all of Egypt, right? Do you remember what he took? The firstborn, right? That's important. The firstborn, the firstborns is important here. It's what we're going to finish up with here in our third section. It's the firstborn. He took that. He could have wiped them all out, right? And then had said, hey, Israelites, you take the land here. But that wasn't his plan. He had something different for them. Under, the old te- under, under that structure there, what God told Moses, he said this, Mo. He said, I'm going to bring judgment upon, upon the land here. I want you to tell the Israelites to go get a lamb they're going to said they're going to choose it on on the 10th of the month, on the 14th of the month, right before sunset, they're going to go ahead and slaughter those lambs. They're going to take some of the blood, you guys know, right, and put it on what? Put it on the doors. Now think about that for a second because that's not hard for us to accept, right? That that God said it, they did it kind of a deal. How freaked out would you be? Or how freaked out would your neighbors be if they came uh, if they came home on Friday? They pull up in their driveway and they look over at you and there you have this dead lamb out in your yard and you've got the sponge that you washed your car with last week and you're dipping it in this bucket of blood and you're putting it over your front door. Your neighbors would freak out or you would freak out. The cops are getting called, right? Somebody's probably, uh, PETA's being called. Somebody's gonna go to jail, all that kind of stuff. Guys, we should understand this would have been mind-blowing to them. What? Why in the world would we put blood over our doors? I'm going to say a lot of people did it, not because they understood, oh, I need the covering of the blood so that the angel of the Lord will pass over my sin and not, and not kill the firstborn in my household. You know what I think? The only thing that they could hang on to in order to obey God in that? What's that word we've been talking about? 
Faith. God said it, so what? So I, I need to go ahead and do it. Just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that I shouldn't be in, obedient to, in, in obedience to it. But what God does over the course of time is he's always teaching us. He's perfecting us. He who began a new work in us will what? See it on to completion. That's the great hope and the promise. You may be sitting here today thinking, gosh, I had a really rough, bad week in my walk with, in my, walk with my heavenly father. Do you know what? God already knows it. He's just going to continue on. We're going to start a new week here. We're going to worship the Lord. Our emphasis is going to go on him, the resurrection, because he has life. We can have life. And now he's going to say, come on, join up with me again. Here we go. Take my yoke upon you, and let's go ahead and do this new week. And that's the great hope that we have, is that Scripture tells us that his mercies are new. How, How many? Every morning his mercies are new. Now, what God did there that was amazing is that when the angel of the Lord came over those homes and the angel saw the blood, the angel did what? Passed over. That's where we get Passover from. The angel passed over. It was a covering. When God tells them to build the ark, they put the law inside of it, there's a cover on top of that. You guys remember what that cover is called? The atonement cover, the Hebrew word is kofar. It means a cover. What God says is build a box and then make a lid for it. And it's the, it's the cover, it's the lid. And on that cover, the high priest would go in one time a year, day of, say like you know it, day of atonement. He walks in there, he takes the blood, he's going to make a sacrifice for the whole nation of Israel, and he sprinkles it where? On that atonement cover. He sprinkles it on there. Now what we have is we have the law down here inside the box. Paul would go on to tell us that the law was a schoolmaster, it was a teacher to show us that we can't be right with God according to our own work that we can't be saved based upon what we do. The law simply shows us our sin and that we're in need of a savior, but the law has no power to change a heart. Now you have the law in here that condemns man. You have the glory of God between, uh, between the angels right here. And in between that, you have blood that has been laid down. It's a covering. But this is what was different about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, their sins were simply just covered. They were, the word atonement in the Old Testament means covered. In the New Testament, but the big difference is this, on the other side of the cross, atonement means that we have now been placed with God. We are at one, at one mint, atonement, at one with God. The difference was this. For 4,000 years, all those people that by faith trusted that God would provide salvation. When they died physically here in this world, spiritually, they still have life. Everybody has spiritual, everybody, everybody goes on for all eternity spiritually, right? It's either spiritual life or spiritual death. We get to choose which avenue we want to go. Wide road, narrow go, uh, road, big gate, narrow gate, however we want to go. We want to walk the lighted path or the darkened path. We get that choice. But their sins were covered Jesus would go to the cross. That's the whole Abraham's bosom kind of a deal. All of those Old Testament believers who believed by faith that God would save them, they had to wait to get into heaven, into the presence of God, I should say, until their sins were actually what? Paid for. Paid for. You see, under the Old Testament structure, they had not yet been paid for. Now, we look back at the cross 
And we understand, we sing the song, Jesus paid it all, right? All to him I owe. We understand that he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And we talked about that. So we talked about the Passover lamb and who he is, the fulfillment of all of that. Chapter 15, verse 42 on Friday, just still in the recap there, the burial of Jesus. You know what that is? There's another feast. So the first feast was Passover, right? begins essentially at twilight on the 15th. It's, it's hard for us sometimes to get a grasp on things whenever the Jewish people started their, their new day in the evening at about 6 o'clock or sundown. But after they killed the lambs, the time whenever Jesus, uh, that, uh, that, that afternoon when Jesus is put to death on the cross, starting at twilight, right when it turns into evening, they've already cooked the lamb over fire, now they're going to go into a celebration, and it's called Passover. They're going to eat the Passover meal, I should say. Not only that, but there's another feast and a festival that's combined right alongside of it. And anybody know what that is? Should, yeah, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven represents what in Scripture? Represents sin. It represents separation. It represents difficulty there. And so we have the situation that, uh, remember this, whenever, whenever somebody refers to Passover, they're referring to the Passover Feast of Unleavened Bread meal. Uh, a celebration. If somebody says, hey, they're celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it means that they're celebrating Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, they are mutually inclusive. They, they, are, they are essentially, you can't have one without the other. If you're celebrating one, you have the other. So sometimes they would just say, we're celebrating Feast of Unleavened Bread and we're supposed to understand that, they're good, that they've had the Passover meal and into that. Remember Jesus on that last meal that he had with his disciples, what kind of meal was that? The Passover meal, remember he talks about this is my body and he gave them the bread, said this is my body. Remember, what was unique about that bread that they would eat during the Passover meal? Has no what? Has no yeast or it doesn't have any leaven. And all of that goes all the way back. We have to jump back. Back to when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt that night, God said, don't make any dough with yeast in it because you're going to be taken out of here at any moment and you're just going to need to get out of here. You're not going to have time for your dough to rise. Just bake it where it's at, eat the meal. And do you remember what God told them? When you eat this meal, have your sandals on, have your staff with you, and you're sitting there literally there to eat the meal like this because they never knew at what moment God would come and call them out of Egypt and take them out of there but it had no sin. Now, Scripture tells us this. So this is a second feast and festival that's going on in Jerusalem when Jesus is uh, essentially now being buried or has been buried. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Scripture tells us this, that he who had no sin became what? Sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of who? Of God. What that means is this. If you have the righteousness of God, it means you are right oneness with God, meaning God now sees you as right in a right position with him. Guys, that's an amazing thing because when we sometimes look at our lives, we have a hard enough time dealing in just relationships around us and we think, man, I screwed up this relationship and I screwed up that relationship. If it were, us to, if it were up to us, would we be able to keep a relationship with God? You guys sure about that? You agree about that 100%? If it were up to us, here's the good news. Jesus says there's a new covenant. And where there's a new covenant, it means the old covenant is set aside because a new covenant and not only a new covenant, a new priesthood is to be established. Go back to Psalm 110. We talked about Melchizedek a few weeks ago. 
been talking a lot about him. Chapter 7 of Hebrews. You can go back to 14 of, uh, of Genesis. All that's talking about that, that guy Melchizedek, that old, that old Testament priest, priest of God most high, king of righteousness, uh, uh, and, uh, and essentially king of Salem as well. And the whole point of that is that when Jesus offers his life, he's offering it sinless. Now, Scripture tells us this. By the way, you should note this. Jesus is the first human to be accepted into the presence of God. Do you know that he's actually going to be the first human that's ever accepted on his own merit, accepted into the presence of God? Do you know why we're accepted into the presence of God? Because of him. We only get there because of what he has done on our behalf. And we put our faith and our hope and we trust in what he has done day by day by day. We constantly have to come back that we are not enough, but he is more than sufficient. And we have to ask God, pour out your grace, pour out your grace, pour out your grace. Enable me to follow you, to love you, to be empowered by your Holy Spirit. So we have, we have there simply this the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this is what's taking place there in Jerusalem. Sometimes we think as a church, we get so far removed from what's going on um, in the Bible that we're just thinking, you know, uh, well, maybe somebody remind us uh, via text or Facebook that, oh yeah, it's Good Friday. I guess it's a good day and it's a Good Friday day. So yeah, you too, happy Good Friday, whatever it may be. And we lose what's going on. Guys, if we can go back 2,000 years, the city of Jerusalem is just bursting at the seams. It's jam-packed with people. It's one of three. The Passover is one of three required feasts that the men have to come. This one, they're going to bring their families. It's just jam-packed. Rome is worried about an insurrection, a rebellion. The priests are worried that they're going to lose the temple. They're going to lose the city. They're going to lose their money. They're going to lose their their high standing in society, which is really why they want to put Jesus. They want to get Jesus out of the scene because people are starting to follow him. People, when they listen to him, it says, and they are, do you remember what the word was? Capital A? Amazed at his teaching because nobody what? And remember? Nobody ever speaks or has spoken the way that this guy has. And, and the priests are like, man, we got a problem. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the teachers of the law, the scribes are like, man, we've got a problem with this guy. Well, that's the picture of Jerusalem. So think about it. So we understand Jesus is the Passover lamb, right? We know that that's why he went to the cross. We understand then they entered into, along with Passover, the feast of what? Unleavened bread, meaning no sin. Because scripture tells us that the the result or what what we have earned, pay me, pay me, pay me, the wages of our sin is what? Death. Boy, don't ever tell somebody that and not keep going, right? <laughs> Have a nice day. Lord be with you. But the God is what? Eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news. Paul would say that there are none righteous. Nobody. Nobody. So he fulfills unleavened bread. The one who is sinless the first to step into the, the first man to step into the full presence of God. Now, I think that Moses was exposed to a lot on Mount Sinai. But we know this, that what Jesus did was different when he stepped into the presence of God because Jesus has the power of what kind of a life, remember? 
Hebrews tells us, the power of an indestructible life. He is the only one who can step into the presence of God because he is fully God and fully what? Fully man. Let me look at this verse here. Um, Head over to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. Scripture would tell us that through, through Adam's sin, we all became sinful. But through the obedience of Christ Jesus, his faith in the Father's plan and the Father's word, that he could bring salvation to anyone who believes. Through Adam, all experience death. But through Jesus, everybody can experience life. Will everybody? Not everybody will choose. But there's the option there. For the greatest of sinners? Yeah, absolutely so. And look at this verse 14. This is, this was the, this is one of the many difficulties. Me, one of many hurdles, chapter 2, verse 14. Many hurdles that a holy and righteous God had to get past because a holy and a righteous God cannot in any way accept somebody's sin. You know somebody says, well, when I'm standing before God, we'll talk it out and we'll get it all worked out. Too late. For it's been ordained once to die and then suffer what? And remember, Judgment. That's the course. If you die here and you're standing before God, you're either a saint or you're an ain't. You're either into his presence for all eternity or you're removed from his presence for all eternity in a place that Jesus calls or that scripture calls the lake of fire where there's a wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I mean, we can go ahead and go on and talk about it. But all I can say is this. That's not the, that's not, that's not the place you want to be. Scripture tells us, let us approach the throne of grace. So you can either be sitting at the throne of grace or in a place where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. I'm going to say that there is one that seems infinitely better than the other. You guys agree with that? So what God has to do is he has to deal with our flesh. Anybody here still dealing with their flesh today? <laughs> Ooh, I got a hand up over there from Jason. Yeah, we're dealing with our flesh. It's our battle every day, isn't it? Look at this, verse 14, 214. Since the children have flesh and blood, since the corrupted children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Meaning this, that's why God came in flesh. Because the only way to save fallen man is to come in the form of man, but yet be the righteous example of a form of man. What God had always attended for, for Adam and Eve and for the creation and so forth, he comes and, he's, and he's, going to be, he's going to live his life in complete obedience to the Father's will. And it says this, he too then put flesh on for you. That's probably the NIC version there. Since you have flesh, he put his flesh on for you so that when he dies, he can break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and to free you who all your life were held in slavery by the fear of death. That's one of the things that legalism does to people. You know what, makes, you know what legalism does to people? makes people afraid that they're not good enough with God and that I better make sure that I'm right today with God or I'm going to die uh, and I'm going to go to hell. And that's why you have people who come, uh, you know, maybe week after week or month after month or maybe once a year they're going forward to get re-saved. I saw that and uh, Angela showed me a post of one of her students was out at a Christian camp and, and, uh, and she posted, best weekend ever, got re-saved. And I'm like, 
Now, maybe you just knew that you weren't saved. Maybe you had wandered away from the Lord and the Lord said, hey, come back to me, child. Maybe that, but guys, there's no concept in Scripture of getting re-saved. Jesus can only die for your sins and pay for them once, right? Uh, there's no re-saved. We, we, we are saved by his grace. It's the work of God. But because we had flesh and blood that was corruptible, we'd have yeast in us, right? A little bit of leaven, a little bit of leaven, a lot of leaven. He comes and he dies for us. Guys, that's why when he goes to the cross as a sinless perfection, he is the one, man, I was thinking about this this morning when I was running through this. Just think about this. For 4,000 years of humanity who had put their faith in God, in his word, they're trusting by faith, that all of those sins, even though they were trusting God by faith and God was covering them from his judgment, they still had sin, didn't they? And you know, over the course of your lifetime, you probably rack up at least 30 or 40 sins, right? A day. <laughs> Sometimes an hour. And what Scripture is telling us is that he has taken each one of those, each, each action requires judgment and punishment. And every sin that each one of those believers in God had committed, Jesus takes the full punishment upon himself. I said on Friday that as gruesome as the, of the mutilation of his body, I believe truly was. It does not compare to the mental suffering that Jesus had on the cross. Before his flesh was ever torn, he's in the garden saying, boys, we, we need to have a prayer session here because it was heavy upon him what he was about to do, Right? And it wasn't so much that he was in fear of the flogging um, or the crown of thorns or the crucifixion as it was he knew that he was going to take the wrath of his father upon himself and for a moment, for a moment, be separated from the father. He's not saying, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Or the Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He's not saying, God, you've left me here. I have no hope. What he's recognizing is that for the first time in his, that he knows in his life. Scripture, by the way, it was either Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53. You guys shout it out because some of you guys read it this week. He says that, uh, that essentially he started following him just from a baby. He had, a, he had the understanding there of God just while, when he was being nursed and so forth. And for the first time in his life as he's on the cross, there's a moment where he doesn't have fellowship with the Father. And that to him was more excruciating than any physical suffering he could experience in the world. Guys, I tell you what, I think that that's why the great gift that Jesus says, um, if I go, I'll ask the Father and he will send you another. Who do we call that? The Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He says, I'll remind you of everything that he'll remind you of everything he said to you. He's going to come alongside you. He's going to comfort you. Guys, you know why we need the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is constantly petitioning us to, to draw closer to the Lord, closer in fellowship, closer in oneness with him, following him, loving him, learning of him, trusting him, putting our complete faith in him. And every day of a believer's life, the Holy Spirit from morning till night is trying to get your attention to tell you to walk more closely with your, with your heavenly father, the lover of your soul, the one who loves you more than you love yourself. You know how we know that? because we can spend our lives trying to destroy ourselves, but God is the only one who has spent all of eternity making a plan that we can be saved by his grace. Amen?
So we get to chapter 16. Let me just read through. I'm going to read through verses 1 through um, one through 6, actually. So we have the crucifixion. Represents the fulfillment of what feast? Passover. You have, you have the burial. Representing what? The unleavened bread, the, the sinless perfection now being offered. Chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, they brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Boy, they didn't know there had been going a lot of activity the night before, huh? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has what? He's risen. He is risen. What, have you guys been trained in this? He is risen. What? Risen indeed. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And the next week, we're going to go into verse 7 through the end of it. Because Peter, Peter still, Peter's in, probably still in a pretty dark place at this point. Self-condemnation for his failure. But the good news is this. They go to the tomb. Jesus has now fulfilled two feasts that are currently going on. Did you know that three days after Passover, there's a third feast that enters in? Did you guys know that? There's a third feast that starts. It's called, and you should write it between, you should write it there at chapter 16, verse 1, where it says something about him rising from the grave, or Jesus has risen, and you write the words, or word, first fruits. In Jerusalem, this is how it's going. I tell you what, the word of God just explodes, comes to life when we understand the whole story. Guys, I honestly, as I study this, I think that, I think that today should be called Resurrection Sunday. I also think that we should call it First Fruits Sunday because that's what Jesus fulfilled. He is the first to enter into the presence of God, making the way, tearing the veil. And when he tears the veil, the great high priest, that veil is torn. What does that mean for anybody else? That they can enter into the presence of God. Now on that day, essentially, this is what's happening. So they've celebrated. Guys, do the Jewish people not know how to get together and have a good time? Man, I wish we could learn that some more from them. They're already... You know, several days into this celebration, they have friends there, family there, old acquaintances and so forth. They're just having a great time. They're celebrating God's great provision for them, bringing them out of Egypt, uh, taking care of them in the wilderness and so forth. And then God says this, three days after Passover, the Feast of first fruits that they're supposed to celebrate. And what the people do is this. It's early, it's the first harvest of the year. They have an early harvest and a late harvest. And the first harvest, before they could harvest, what's that word? Harvest. What's the word? Harvest. Before they could harvest everything that was out there, they first had to go to their field, cut off a sheaf of grain, take it into the temple, into the, in, into the priest area, give it to the priest, and it was offered to the Lord as first what? 
as first fruits. Before they did anything else, before they sat down and started eating the grain, whether it be the wheat or the barley, I forget which one's in the springtime and which one's later on. Before they would eat that, they first brought a portion. I mean, there's a lot of application for this. And they would bring it to the Lord and he would accept the first fruits of what he had given them. You know, now there's, there's a monetary reality to this that God is saying, you know what? Always respond to me, you know, with the first of what you have. You know, just, just do that. But that's not the focus that we're going to stay on this morning. The focus is this. If there's a feast and a festival, is there going to be somebody who fulfills it? Yeah, because we know in the Old Testament, God has painted all of these physical examples. They're shadows, they're types. And then in the New Testament, we're seeing that Jesus is, he's fulfilling all of those. So in the Old Testament, it's like all of the arrows pointing forward saying, look for this, look for this, look for this. And then when people see Jesus, they're supposed to say, oh yeah, God was saying we're supposed to look for this and look for this, we'll look for this. And Jesus is a fulfillment of all of that. So if there's a feast of first fruits, well, there must be, there must be some reason that Jesus, by the way, the day he comes out of the grave is the day that they start celebrating first fruits. Let's look at a verse here. Uh, two verses, Roman 8 and 29. Let's look at that real quick. And then we're going to go over a better verse, I think, is 1 Corinthians, uh, Corinthians 15. Romans 8, 29 tells us this. Now, what's funny, don't you guys love it when you're, when you're reading through the Bible and you come across a really popular verse, and you're like, oh yeah, I know this one. And then you read the one after it, and you're like, I had no idea that that's where that is. For example, I would say probably most people in the room would know Romans 8, 28, right? And we know that all things, th- these are the verses we like, right? We know that in all things, God works for the what? For the good. We don't gravitate so much towards the verses that say, those who desire to live godly for Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Those are not the verses that were like, oh yeah, memorize that several times in my life. Carry it around with me everywhere I go. We like that we know because when something tragic happens, we're like, there's going to be good from it. Is it true? Does God work for the good even in the midst of difficulty, suffering? Sometimes, sometimes that's the only way that we acknowledge him and that we grow. But look at this. Romans 8, 28. You guys know that, but look at verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now pause there for a second. There's a comma. It's a great place to stop. What essentially saying is this. God wants to transform you to be just like his son. Did you know that that is the work that the Father's trying to do in your life through the Holy Spirit today, through his word, with his word? Look at this. Verse 29b. That he, meaning the son, Jesus, might be the what? Firstborn among what? Many brothers and sisters. Now what Paul's telling the Romans there is that God's plan is that when Jesus ascends into the presence of the Father, he makes the way for, what's the phrase there? Many men and women to follow him into the kingdom of God. Now hear this for a second. The question for every single person in this room right now is this. Are you following? Have you made the decision to follow Christ into the presence of, of our Heavenly Father? Is that, have you made that decision? Are you one of the many sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, 
That's following the firstborn into the presence of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Let's look at that. Just to your right, you're in Romans. Go to your right. Uh, Corinthians chapter 15, 20 through 23. First Corinthians 15 and 20 says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The what? There it is. Now just pause there for a second. Because guys, this is what we should, this is, this is what, this is why we need to just, we just need to know God's word. Because if you have no idea of what first fruits is about. You read through this and you're like, okay, Christ indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Yeah, Jesus is raised from the dead. Amen, praise the Lord. What it's telling us is this. If there is a first fruit, what else is there? Yeah, there's a capital H, harvest. Chapter 9 of Matthew? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are what? Few. Guys, we should understand God's desire for our lives today is to be sanctified, be conformed to the image of his son. And the sole purpose of Jesus' life was to be lived in obedience to the Father. And he says he's come as a ransom. He's come to pay the price so that people can be saved. That's the culmination of his life. That is his life. Guys, has God, are you part of the harvest? The question is this, do you think in your sphere of influence, is there a harvest that's there? People that you know, you come in contact with, neighbors, community, fellowship, all of that, is there still a harvest have, have you exhausted your sphere of influence? And you're like, Lord, you know what? Every single person we know, you know, we, we, you know they've made a, a decision for you or against you. I, I guess go ahead and expand my territory, right? Go ahead and open it up. Take me somewhere else to share the gospel. I think that that's the mentality that God desires for us to have. That our single goal in this life is to simply live for the Father. And when you do that, your desire is that you would see the saving of many souls of God working through you. Maybe you spend a life in prayer. Maybe you're a person like Jeremiah that preaches for 40 years and nobody repents. We are not rewarded based upon how many. We're rewarded upon our faithfulness to who he is in his word, right? That is what our reward, our reward is the righteousness of Christ working through our lives. That's what Revelation talks about fine linen, bright and clean, was given for them to wear, the church, the bride. And then there's a parenthesis, and John explains us that that's the righteous acts, that the white robes represent the righteous acts of the believers, meaning anything that's righteous in our lives is what Christ has done through it. It's not because we've done it, right? You guys got that? Otherwise, we would boast about that as well. But Christ has indeed, verse 20 again, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came by a man, meaning Adam, 
The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The whosoevers will believe or would believe. But each in turn, listen, there's a way in which this has to happen. Each in his or her own turn, but who has to go first? Christ has to go first. He is the, what's that phrase? First fruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. In Jerusalem at this time, they're celebrating the wonderful harvest of God. You see, they were, they were celebrating the crops that God had given them. Those who had put their faith in Jesus, those, the disciples, the apostles, your Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, guys like this and so forth, some, some top religious people in the community. They began to see it differently. That is why in about 50 days, you're going to see Peter gets up the very first time, right? Empowered by Peter. Is that what it says on his side? Sponsored by Peter, empowered by Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's why we're going to wait next week to finish up the rest of the chapter because there's something important that we don't necessarily have in Mark that I want to make sure we get out where Jesus says, go and wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. When he comes upon you, you will receive power to be my witnesses, right? And that's, that is where, that is where we can step aside and say, God, fill me with your power and your might and you take me. But here's the deal. He's the first fruits. And if there's a first fruit, as we said earlier, there's also a what? There's also a harvest that God has desired. Remember that first day that Peter gets up and preached? What? 3,000. You know, give or take probably several hundred. 3,000 people come to the Lord. 3,000 people. And it's all because of this. One man's faithfulness. One person's faithfulness to say, here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me. That's all. Lord, I believe in you. Remember, Jesus had to have a little discussion with Peter. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Restoring Peter back into position that Jesus desires for him to be, a man who is moldable, who can be transformed into the glory and the grace of God, and Peter can step out. Now, was he perfect there? Remember, he still struggled with the whole Jew and Gentile eating together. I mean, he had some problems going on there. But he trusted God, and God was able to use him. Guys, I want you to know that that's exactly what God is looking for. He's not looking for perfection, because those are just legalists, and they're just going to condemn other people. What he's looking for is somebody who says, Lord, here's this vessel. You use it however you see fit. The whole point of it is Jesus talks about living water, right? flowing into a man, bursting forth, flowing out, right? And guys, maybe, maybe, maybe that's what we need to be seeking the Lord to make sure that, that we're not just kind of getting like a third of the way filled up and we're kind of happy with it. Well, yeah, yay church, kind of a deal. Yay God, we're, we're, we're not anti you. We're just trying to make sure we have enough time for you, God. It's, oh, it's hard living here. But it's the concept of saying, Lord, 
fill me, break the banks, meaning like the river banks, or your bank if you need to. Lord, fill me, burst out from me, that you be glorified. If there's a first fruits, there's a big, big harvest. And praise the Lord this morning if you're following him to the presence of the Father, following the first fruits. Now, this is what's interesting to me, and this is why I think, I think we should at least consider when we're going to talk about Resurrection Sunday, throw out the concept of first fruits. Because you have to remember, it's about 10 years that, that the early church in Jerusalem, it's about 10 years before, uh, before the stoning of Stephen and all of that before the church actually breaks out of Jerusalem and really starts going all these different directions. And so for 10 years, the church was primarily Jew or Gentile. Did you guys know? Jewish. Probably like 99% Jewish. I mean, I'm not saying that there weren't hundreds or uh, so forth of Gentiles who came into the faith, but predominantly it were Jewish people who accepted Jesus as their Messiah, right? Nothing wrong with being a Jew. Your religion tells you or what you have, it's telling you Jesus is your Messiah and your Savior. That's why in a couple of weeks we're going down to Branson to worship with the Messianic Jewish congregation when they celebrate Passover in the end of April. And man, they're excited about Yeshua. They're excited about Yahweh. They're excited about G-D. <laughs> they're excited about God. They won't write out the full name. It's a whole other story. But guys, this is what we come to because in Jerusalem on the day that Jesus is raised from the dead, people are celebrating how great God is and the abundant provision and what God is going to do. The church from that point, the following year, I believe that as everybody else was celebrating first fruits of the field, I think that the church is gathering around the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers that were there. They're gathering around saying, oh man, what God has in store. If there's a first fruit, there's, there's a harvest to follow. And God is saying, call out, to the Lord of the harvest and ask him to send out workers into his harvest field. Completion of Matthew chapter 9 there. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Let me see what else I have here. Just make this note here. If a way has been made for you, a way has been made for your neighbor. The person you sit by at work your neighbor across the street next to you, co-workers, employees, friends, family. If the way has been made for you, the way has been made for them. Now, a note on Easter. Just so that we know what it's come from, and I have to say today, this passage of Scripture all of this points to Jesus. All of this points us to Jesus. And I have to say that I've, I've struggled a little bit with, with the concept of Easter this year. And then I did some, I, I did some read. I, I went back to some of my books that I had highlighted and stuff. It's heavy reading. It's, it's, it's no fun to read. But essentially, this is where we get our Easter from. And I believe today... It is easy for how we celebrate this day to not be about Jesus. 
We'll put time and attention. We'll plan out getting eggs and grass and buying candy. We'll spend money on it and time. We're going to set all this up. We're going to make it great for the kids. But we don't put one-tenth of that time in preparation to worship the Lord on Sunday morning on Resurrection Day. It's easy to do that, I should say. This is how Easter got into the church. 313, 300 years into the existence of the church, I believe up through probably the first century, the church was probably celebrating first fruits. I think they were celebrating. It's a Jewish congregation. They've done it their whole lives. Now they know the fulfillment of it. They're celebrating Passover. They're uh, celebrating Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're celebrating uh, first fruits because it's all about Jesus. Who doesn't want to worship Jesus? It's all about him. And all of the glory went to him. 313, Emperor Constantine, ruler of Rome, essentially ruler of the world in a sense. He wanted to make, he wanted to to, uh, destroy the division between the Christians and the pagans. There was a a warring faction there. 313, he essentially makes a declaration, 300 years in the church existence, that all of Rome will be Christian. If you're a Roman, you're Christian. That actually didn't come into play till I think it was maybe around the 360s, 370s, that actually that had full implementation but essentially, in one fail swoop, everybody who, who lived inside of the borders of Rome was now declared, what? Christian. So now you have pagans that are celebrating their holidays, and you have, you have Christians, and they're celebrating their holidays and so forth. You have Jewish believers celebrating and, and all of this, and there's still kind of a, a little bit of a funk going on between, well, how come we're not going to worship, you know, at this time, this thing, and so forth, and there's a division. And, you know, they actually moved the calendar so that the pagan, the pagan holidays would line up with the Christian holidays. Matter of fact, if you guys didn't know this, Jesus wasn't born in the year zero. He's actually born about the year four BC. That's where that time comes off is they, they essentially changed the calendar <laughs> so that it would match up with what the pagans were doing. Now, this is what's interesting. All false reli- religions originate in what place? Do you guys remember? Huh? Babylon. Remember the Tower of Babel? That is the center of all false religion. Every false religion in the world started there. And it has spread out through the world. Essentially what happened is the Babylonian religion made its way up into Rome, was then declared those priests of the Babylonian religion. It's where we get uh, hot cross buns from. It's where we get the Easter eggs. That's Astra, uh, Astarte, uh, uh, um, um, what's the other? Uh, uh, Ishtar, Ishtar, right? Ishtar, Ishtar. And what happened is the pagan priests got up into Jerusalem or got up into, uh, into Rome, started taking some, uh, everybody's declared Christian. They start taking offices and so forth. And then there had to be this balance between let's go ahead and make the pagans and the Christian happy. And that's where they blend all these things together. I'm pretty sure that the year one of the church, I'm pretty sure Peter wasn't sitting down doing Easter eggs with the kids. Now, I'm not saying you're evil for doing that. All I'm saying is this. Would you be honest with yourself and ask if that has been a distraction? Would you be honest with yourself and say, hey, have I spent more time focusing on that than I have on my Lord? And you know, we might just have to admit what? 
Yeah. Was the excitement getting up this morning that we're going to hide Easter eggs? And it is fun. I mean, Easter eggs are fun, right? You guys agree? But guys, not if it detracts a little bit from what this day truly represents, the saving of your souls, the sacrifice of the Lamb. Let's stand. Chris, would you go ahead and play that last song for us, please? Question for you. We started with the understanding of what it took for a person, the only thing needed for somebody to be saved, Old Testament, New Testament, was what? Faith. Where does your faith lie today? Here's the question. Don't lose me yet. Hang in here a couple more minutes. We're going to do one video song and then, and then we'll be dismissed. Who, what, or where has your faith been placed the last week, the last month, maybe the last year? Is it in him or have you noticed kind of that self-designation? Uh, you know, well, I, I need to accomplish this and this and this and this in my life and I need to do this and this and this. Let me say, that's not for, that's not for me to determine what's going on. All I know is this, is God is calling you to allow him to be supreme in your life. And he's saying if you allow him supreme authority in your life, he is the one who can put everything exactly where and how it needs to be. Jesus says the father is the gardener. He's the vine. We're the branches. And that there are things that God needs to just branches just need to be chopped off. But he also says this. The Father is one who comes to those branches, and what does he do? He, what's the word? P, prunes them. And the only reason for pruning is to what? Is to produce more fruit. I hope that you've heard something this morning that helps you to remember what has been accomplished on your behalf and the great desire of your God, your heavenly Father, to produce in and through your life. If your faith is not in him, you can make that decision today. I'm going to be back here during the song. If your faith, if you have not placed your faith in him, I want you to come talk to me. Because here's the deal. That's the most important thing today. There is nothing else you need to get to. I'm jumping on the road after this, but you know what? I can skip that whole family adventure if it means somebody who's willing to come into the kingdom today. Take advantage of what is being offered to you this morning. Don't worry about what anybody else is thinking. Take advantage of what is being offered. It's the saving of your soul. When the song starts, I'm going to walk back there. You come back and just say, hey, I need to know about how to have that relationship with Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for your great grace, your mercy, your love, your patience that you have for us, your long-suffering. Father, we thank you that if there is a first, there is a harvest. Father, we thank you that you have chosen us to be part of that harvest and may we be those who simply will follow you into the presence of our Heavenly Father. Let us approach the throne of grace that will receive mercy and find grace to help us at any time that we need help. Father, help us to call out to you, to worship you, to love you, to adore you, to exalt you. Let the fruit 
Let the fruit of what you have done in our lives flow from our lips into our spheres of influence that you'd be glorified. The body says, Amen.